Hello, this is Leslie Garfield Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on newsworthy legal topics. Today, I'm excited to speak with Professor Noah Ben Asher about their groundbreaking article, Gender Identity, the New Legal Sex. I heard Professor Ben Asher present on the topic, and I learned a lot. Professor Ben Asher argues that we should identify our gender based on what our minds tell us rather than how our body presents. It's a fascinating way to think about gender, and I wanted to share it with listeners. So here's my discussion with Professor Ben Asher. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me, Leslie. Um, all right, so tell me, tell me a little bit about um, what your article asserts. So my article uh, really is a work, it has been a work in progress in the last two decades. Uh, and it started in the early 2000s when I noticed that the idea of gender identity is uh, becoming something that's talked about in, in popular media, like the Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, and uh, there was some, it's some more visibility around the idea that our sex is not necessarily defined by our genitals or our chromosomes. Uh, and so that that that's really what this article kind of traces. It's, it's how this insight translated through medical experts, popular culture, and then how it plays out today in different legal contexts. So I know it, 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 we talk about it in the legal context, but you know, we, you and I both teach torts. And one of the things we talk about in torts is intentional infliction of emotional distress, right? So intentional infliction of emotional distress wasn't a thing way back when, I think, I, I don't know, I think it became something in the 50s, but don't quote me, I don't know if I'm exactly right with the date. And I think one of the reasons why is because we didn't think of mental health or mental illness as harmful, like you couldn't have emotional harm. And I guess that's a long way of saying like, we don't think about what goes on in the mind as much as we think about what goes on in our body because people can see our body. They can see a broken arm. They can see if you have breasts, right? So I'm wondering if what's going on with your article kind of tracks this idea that it's time to start thinking now about what people's minds tell them rather than what people's bodies are telling them. Yes, so I love the, the analogy into thinking about this through tort law also, and the idea of the psyche. And you're right that in the 20th century, and this is definitely post-Freud, we get much more interest in our psyches through obviously psychoanalysis, but also uh, kind of in how we understand humans, right? And we we care about psychological harm today in ways uh, that are not only through intentional fiction, emotional distress, but we see it also in negligence claims mm -hmm. that, you know, regular negligence claims where there's a lot of attention to psychological uh, injury and harm. With gender, what uh, is fascinating is that we have throughout history we've had we've had kind of this idea that not everyone is strictly divided into males and females. Uh, in fact, just yesterday I was looking with my uh, with one of my children at, at a biblical text, not not a biblical text in the Talmud, uh, where there is an androgynous. And you have to figure out who the androgynous is and do, are, do they have the male requirements from the Torah or the female or both or neither. And, and so the idea that some people don't match on to strictly body uh, uh, narratives has been around definitely in Greek mythology, Jewish tradition. Uh, and then what happens in the 19th and 20th century 
this is where my article really zooms in, is medical experts start saying, you know, we can't really know by looking at either our gonads or our genitals or even our chromosomes, what this person really will become, right? Mm -hmm. What this child is going to become in the future. And so in the 1950s, the idea of the gender identity is actually ingrained in our brains and doesn't necessarily correlate with any of what we call uh, physical or biological sex, so people like to call it, uh, is starting to take hold and to affect the treatment of transgender children and, and intersex children uh, and, and kind of makes its way, right now we're seven decades after that, into our legal understanding of what it means to be a gendered being. So that's a great explanation. And um, I did not, and the Torah is basically the scrolls that Jews read every week, you know, that, that date back. So just for those who are unfamiliar with that, um, when you talk about the new legal sex, what I'm wondering also is in what context does this come up in case law? In other words, where have there been cases where gender identity has mattered to the to the party to the case? The most, so my article looks at, at, at different areas of law. It looks at anti-discrimination laws. It looks at family law. And uh, it looks at health uh, concerns, healthcare. And the, the, the most prominent place right now, and we see it all over popular culture and all over the media, is, is the Title IX and Title VII debates around bathrooms, restrooms, locker rooms, access to sports in educational in the educational context so so and that, that's where the action kind of the action is happening at the most visible level it's around these debates of you know where can a high school kid go which bathroom should should they use is it what the more conservative lawmakers such as in florida um and other states texas Texas, say sex at birth right? Mm -hmm. The bathrooms that or locker rooms or sports teams that uh, student athletes should attend, or does it go based on, on gender identity? So that's where a lot of like the fifth circuit just came, uh, just, just had a, a uh, just created a, a circuit split on this very question uh, regarding, regarding that. So I'm, I'm assuming the fifth circuit said it's, you have to use the bathroom that you were of the gender you were assigned at birth. Yeah, the, the fifth circle in a really problematic decision that in fact they talked about in Bloomberg Radio uh, just basically said, you know, this is how we define sex. Sex right. is biological sex. It cannot be changed. Right. Uh, and this, this transgender boy who had been transgender since fourth grade is now asked not to use the women's room, but to use the gender neutral cell, right? Basically just for people like him. Wow. You know, wow. So, so, but, but the other circuits, so the seventh circuit has gone the other way, the fourth circuit has gone the other way in the famous uh, Gavin case. Uh, and so there we have a circuit split and a question of whether the Supreme Court is going to have to decide that question. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think the Supreme, well, we know sadly or not, you know, we know it'll happen if it gets up there. But I'm just wondering if you think the Supreme Court will take this case. It's, it's complicated because in Bostock, right, the Supreme Court did decide a Title VII context in the employment context around you know, trans protecting transgender rights, but the, specifically in a decision by Gorsuch, first of all, he doesn't talk about gender identity at all. Uh, mm -hmm. He thinks it's all about what he calls biological sex. And second of all, he said, we're not deciding the bathroom cases. This is beyond our scope right now. 
So are they going to take it up? And if so, what is the court going to do? I don't think it's a, uh, I don't think it's going to be great for right now for LGBTQ allies and allies for, for this okay. court to yeah. take this question on, on, you know, what, because the real question is, what does sex mean? You know, what, are, what do we mean when we say sex? So right. do we want these justices, these six justices in the Supreme Court right now who are making the decision to define for the rest of us what legal sex means? Right. You know, it's interesting that you say this as we talk about the Supreme Court, because we can go back centuries and centuries and centuries, and you've identified where people talk about this idea of um, gender nonconformity, and yet it's it's religion that's also kind of preserving what they perceive as gender identity as it is defined by a by by body part. Um, I, I just had to point that out, but I guess I'm going to switch gears and ask you. Can you talk a little bit about, it, or if you have an opinion on Title IX, which deals with um, student sports, high school sports athletes, and how we should decide who should be playing on what team, and 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 talk a little bit about the arguments on both sides and how you come out. So the the the, the sports teams question has, has gotten a lot of attention, and uh, what's interesting about the, this dilemma is that. It is often raised in sort of as a the argument against inclusion based on gender identity is often raised as a feminist claim to protect uh, women's sports, right? Uh, and, right. and, and I want I'm going to interrupt and tell you that I'm of a certain age that I was not allowed to play women's sports. You could be a cheerleader, and I couldn't do a cartwheel, so that was out or nothing. So there is some value to Title IX on that end. But anyway, yeah. Right, right, right. And just to, just to be clear, Title IX is not only about sports. Title IX, as you know, is in general prohibiting debt, sex discrimination in the educational context. Exactly. But sports, inclusion in a sports team is definitely part of the equal opportunity context of, of Title IX. And so the concern that's raised by many conservative anti-trans bills, folks, pol politicians, um, radio personalities, is that if we let transgender girls participate in, say, uh, swim teams, uh, other other uh, female uh, uh, sports teams, then the quote unquote real women or girls are going to do less well, right? Uh, and because because of the uh, hormonal differences and bodily differences right. between those assigned female at birth and those assigned male at birth, right? Uh, and so, uh, so some say it's about the, the you know the hormonal levels, testosterone, more testosterone. Some say it's about the, you know the size of the feet, the the, the height, mm -hmm. uh, and all of that. Mm -hmm. So, what you know the problem with that kind of arguing, and you know that's gotten a lot of attention. Is that it disguises itself as you know feminist, mm -hmm. uh, but it is often just transphobic. Mm -hmm. I mean, just, we just have to like pay attention when those arguments uh, come up. I have seen them come up less in the context of transgender men participating in sports because the claim there is not really that you know they're going to outdo the, right. those uh, males assigned at birth. So it's often, so this debate often comes up in the form of uh, challenging transgender girls in sports. My position is that, that gender identity should be the determining factor there. And it's, it is based on, first of all, my position on you know, how important sports is vis-a-vis -vis mental health and social recognition 
and just the well-being of children in school, mm -hmm. right? I think that is just much more important than who wins what, you know, what record. Right. Uh, and second, uh, many of these kids are already on uh, uh, puberty blockers or are already at the hormonal level of uh, not uh, different from those uh, signed male at birth. So often the claim itself based on the biology is not that strong. Uh, so in that, for that reason, I strongly support, especially in the high school years and middle school years to let kids participate in the sports teams that they feel comfortable in. Yeah. And this, I mean, this really does come down to mental health across the board, right? Like if you're making people suppress who they feel they are in their mind, then they will have mental health issues because they can't be who they want to be. But going back to sports, it's interesting. I thought of another analogy, which is, you know, we worry, there's a lot of arguments about victimizing women and that's an anti-feminist argument. So like helping women because they're less than men is actually some argue anti-feminist because it's saying women aren't equal to men, right? So if we're making that argument in sports, it kind of plays out a little bit, right? Like women can't compete as well as men. So um, women can't compete as well as others who identify as women if they have male hormones in them. It, it almost, it, it kind of tracks a little bit the victimization argument that many feminists feel is detrimental to feminism. So, you know, I think it's an interesting perspective. Yeah, and, and the, the victimization argument, so, so, you know, in the context of sports, I think that those who are kind of arguing for the kind of physical biological differences are are building more on on right on on, on how on I, I'm not sure I would call it victimization I would call it like different like holding on to the difference between the sexes mm -hmm. right? and, and, and the fact that males are going to always outperform with, with males, uh, th those uh, assigned female at birth right but where your point is even more stark is the bathroom context and there there is a victimization context in which yeah. if we let those the, the, the conservative argument is if we let those transgender women uh go into the bathrooms mm -hmm. then everyone all the other uh those those assigned female at birth are going to be victimized because mm -hmm. they're all just you know uh victims they're waiting to be preyed on right by the transgender right women Right. And, and there the, the stereotypes are both ways. Both, both is that those assigned male at birth are always going to be sexual predators and those in the bathrooms uh, who were who not assigned male at birth are always going to be the victims waiting to be violated. And the statistics are just overwhelmingly that this is just a myth and it just has, does not happen. And the opposite happens. Those who are usually uh, subjected to violence in, in bathrooms and in context are the transgender women mm -hmm. and not the uh, cisgender women. That's interesting. Well, I, I do. I see the the bathroom issue is very different than the sports issue to me, right? Because one's about competition and one's just about the right to personal autonomy. I mean, I guess they're both about the right to personal autonomy, but I don't. I do. I don't see. I see them differently. And you know, it's you know, I have children, and and they don't see gender. You know, they just everyone should be who they want to be. Um, I feel like in time some of the older generations who did not grow up with the idea of, you know, gender identity um, issues are going to go away. <laughs> and this is going to become more and more comfortable. And so all the more reason why your article is so cutting edge, because 
it's getting us to think about something. You know, to me, the reason I was so taken by your article was it gave me, you talk about Oprah, that Oprah aha moment and made me think about this in a way that made sense to me, right? That made sense that this is not about how you present. This is about how you feel. And I can understand that. Um, so I really, and I, I, I just thought that was so fascinating and, and, and digestible. And so I wanted to share that with our listeners. Um, anything else that you want to share before we say goodbye? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, this is just, it's just fascinating. And, and I just wanted to say that my pointing out that the, the law is, is turning toward, towards gender identity as the primary factor of, of legal sex doesn't come without concern. I just wanted to, to iterate that. And the concern that I have had, that I have voiced and other scholars in my field have uh, started and have been uh, raising is that it really, this idea of being transgender or gender non-binary has been negotiated through medical diagnosis and expertise. Uh, and I, hope that this is just a stage towards, as you say, you know, gender doesn't matter and we don't need to diagnose people in order to accept that you feel cisgendered, I assume, Leslie, I feel transgendered and there's no, there's nothing to diagnose about it, right? right. And I hope that that's where we're headed. We're definitely not there yet. No. Uh, and so the problematic point of gender identity right now is that it is still heavily negotiated through diagnosis, pathology, expertise, the idea of curing and treating. Uh, so we're, we're definitely not at the, you know, at a, at a great place uh, to end the gender question, uh, but, but this is where I think we are in 2023. I agree. And I, I just, you know, I think we're not there yet because I think, I'm not justifying that we're not there yet. I wish we were there yet, but I think it's a generational thing. I really do. I think this is this is something you know, people don't like change, you know, not that this is change and certainly no pun intended there, but, um, <laughs> but anyway, sorry. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me about this. And I will point people to your incredible article and all of your work, which is on this area. So thanks again for taking the time, Noah. Thank you, Leslie. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, Send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day.